0: to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today, we're going to be talking about and updating you on all the most recent news related to COVID. But before we do that, we want to take a moment to talk about the fact that we've actually just passed the one-year mark of the start of this pandemic. Kyle, do you remember when you first learned about COVID-19? Yeah,
1: I do. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, I remember receiving an email on New Year's Eve day, middle of the day. And I remember that because I was at my in-law's house um, and we were, uh, you know, kind of celebrating with the family. And I got this email and, you know, it said there's a cluster of pneumonia-like cases reported in Wuhan, China. You know, we have folks on the ground in China who are trying to get more information. Stand by. We'll let you know when we have more. And, you know, that's not really unheard of. I mean, those types of emails kind of so get all the time.
0: it wasn't alarming to you by any means to get an email like that? No,
1: it, it really wasn't. I mean, we, we see those emails, like I said, kind of all the time. Most of the time, they turn out to be absolutely nothing. In a handful of cases, they turn out to be, you know, a 100-year global pandemic. Uh, I, I do remember uh, another time receiving a, a similar em- email about, you know, hemorrhagic fever in the DRC and it turned out to be the second largest Ebola outbreak the world's ever seen. So, I mean, you, you the first couple of times you get these emails, it is kinda, oh my God, this is terrifying. And over a number of years you kinda okay, you know, this is par for the course, this is typical. Let's get more information before we, you know, panic or anything like that. But uh, I do remember receiving that email it's- yeah
0: I mean it definitely does become a little bit more routine and you you almost get used to it I hate to say. but we have to remember too there in the history of CDC I mean the agency was just founded in, in 1946 I believe so they hadn't actually been through a pandemic. In the life of the agency, um, so this is this is well, never of, one of one of this <laughs>
1: one of this size. I mean, we right. we had other you know H one N one and some others, but nothing sure. anywhere near this size and scope.
0: That's right. But you know, while we were at CDC, we had the opportunity to be involved in a number of different responses during our time there, and every time, you know, we saw the CDC quickly, you know, gear into action identify the problem, and begin to work it, right? And so early on, I I thought that this response was going to be pretty similar to what we'd already experienced before.
1: Yeah, and it did start out that way. It, it did start out exactly like Ebola and some of the others. I mean, we, senior leadership, uh, found out about that, um, you know, through that email on December 31st, 2019, by January 7th. We had an entire incident command structure in place with full time people dedicated to this response. Uh, we had daily sit reps or situational reports that we were developing about all of the new information that we knew on the ground in China that we used to inform up the ladder to folks at HHS in the administration. And I mean, this is what the C D C do does. I mean, as soon as they see a problem like this, they activate The emergency operations center and have people full time working on this
0: exactly. And so we're not doctors or epidemiologists, and we'd never lived through something like this before. And we'd always, you know, leaned on the expertise of the scientists around us. Um, So, and to your point, we moved quickly. Within a week, we had the incident command structure up and running. So how long was it before you realized that this was going to be different? Yeah, this
1: was – it was sometime in mid-January. I don't remember the specific date, but it was after we had started doing the daily morning um, updates to Dr. Redfield. So every morning we would have a staff meeting where we would update Dr. Redfield and other senior leaders um, about what was going on in the, uh, the outbreak in China and you know so of envision being in the Emergency Operations Center, which is this big ginormous room that can hold you know a hundred or if not more people, it's rows and rows and rows of desks with in the front of the b uh, um Room, huge giant TV screens that have the news on, but also maps of the world of where different people are deployed. A map of China and Wuhan, where all of these little red dots are places where we're seeing the outbreak. Uh, people running around with cell phones in both hands, talking at the same time. I mean, it's just this is the center of the um, the uh, response, and in the back of that room is a uh, a conference room that holds you know 20 or so people and every morning that's where we had these um, updates senior leadership in the response updating Dr. Redfield and others about what's going on and we had just finished one of those meetings and I turned to um, one of the senior scientists on the response who have been doing who have been working on infectious respiratory diseases for decades and I you know leaned over and asked him, you know, how serious is you know, is this going to be? And he said, This is the real deal. Mm-hmm. This people are going to die. And I was kind of taken aback because this is this individual is not the type of person to kind of bluster and overstate things. He's very dry humor, but, you know, you know, honest. And so it's not something I was expecting him to say. And it was that moment that I knew what we were working on was different.
0: Yeah. Well, it's still hard to believe that we have been living with this for over a year now. Um, And though we can kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel, we still don't know exactly when this is going to be over. And despite all of the good news that there is out there about the vaccines and that we're getting more... um, you know millions of of vaccines out there there's there's a lot about this pandemic especially here in the states that continues to go in the wrong direction um the epi curve that we see is still going up and up and up and up we're not even at a point where we are beginning to see it sort of level off and begin to go down um and we're seeing some states and communities actually reverting to previous mes- measures from the spring and summer that you know, are meant to help reduce the spread. And even yesterday, CDC announced that beginning later this month, international travelers coming to the U.S. are going to have to provide a negative test within three days of their travel. And we're once again seeing hospitals begin um, to see overcrowding, which means that, you know, for some and for even some here in the state of Georgia, we're hearing that they're having to pause certain elective surgeries. Uh, And then on top of that, we're also learning that the disease is is also mutating. So we're seeing multiple new strains strains of the disease, one from the UK, one from South Africa, Brazil, at least a couple that have been identified so far originating here in the US. And some of these strains are... um, are about fifty percent more contagious than the original strain of the virus that had been circulating in the us
1: yeah and, and that's one of the CDC's core missions is to um, have a surveillance program in place to track you know both uh, the outbreak as we're seeing it, but also these different variants as they pop up. And so through a network of public health labs, academic labs, commercial labs uh, the CDC is receiving anywhere from 3,000 to 3,500 different samples from across the entire nation each week where they're able to look and and track these different variants as they pop up. So I know it's kind of scary to hear about these different, um, variants coming about and where are they? Are they, you know, running rampant across the country? The answer is they're not at the moment and the CDC's tracking that information.
0: But we would have, I mean, the CDC always expected or anticipated that the virus would mutate because that's what viruses typically do in order to survive. Right. I mean, I think we're most familiar with that on an annual occurrence with the flu. Um, Because it it mutates every year and then we have to actually, um, I mean, it does mutate every year and that's why we have to update the flu vaccine on an annual basis.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this is going to be a very dumbed down version, but it's to be expected that as the outbreak progresses, that... The virus can become more infectious, but it also can become less infectious. It can become more harmful, but it's just as likely that it can become uh, less harmful. So that's why it's important that the CDC has uh, these surveillance programs in place so that, again, once these different variants start showing up on our shores, we're able to monitor where they're, where they're going and how they're progressing.
0: Absolutely. And I think that imp- point you just made about the surveillance that CDC is conducting is really important because that gets us back to the heart and core of public health and what CDC does on a regular basis. Because as great as testing and, and vaccines are, and we absolutely need those, we still need to remember that core public health and those core public health tools are critical to not only helping us in this pandemic, but being prepared for the next one.
1: Yeah, this reminds me of a, so I'm on an email chain with a a lot of friends from college and uh, they ask me all the time what they need to be doing. And it's kind of the running joke now that the first thing Kyle's going to say is wash your dang hands. (laughs) <laughs> yes please vaccines are great you should get them when available you should wear a mask all of these things we need and should continue to do you should also continue to social distance and wash your dang hands
0: uh, yeah it's 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 still um baffling to me just how challenging it is to get folks to do those basic the things basics. i mean and we should we should be washing our hands all the time not just during a pandemic i might add right. but um you know to, we talked about all this, you know, new news that's that's been percolating and and happening around COVID. But, you know, to, the the real icing on the cake is the fact that we're actually finding ourselves not only in this hundred year pandemic, but also in the middle of a presidential transition, and we have two voices essentially within the federal government right now we have the outgoing trump administration and then the incoming biden administration and and they're both putting out messages to states at this point in time and and to the american people about what should be done and then what is gonna be done once we have that new administration and those new leaders in place um and as you know, we have vaccines that are being distributed to states. We've got 27 million or, or more um, out there so far, and about nine million have been administered. And so, you know, just one example of these these messages that are coming out is um, was earlier this week, the Trump administration said to states that they can begin vaccinating everybody that's over the age of 65, which is somewhat against what. Um, the advisory committee on immunization practices, which is, we've talked about them before in previous podcasts. They advise the CDC and the federal government on who should get vaccines and when. Um, and the recommendations that they had put forward, which is a very measured and tiered approach to make sure that those who are, um, you know, healthcare workers, essential workers, and and really in those most vulnerable categories that they were prioritized to get vaccine first. But now the administration is saying anyone over the age of 65, and also they're saying that they could penalize states if they don't get the vaccine out fast enough and if they fail to provide the government with real-time data on their vaccination performance. Um, So it's just made it even tougher on states, you know, to... Um, balance this very challenging period that we find themselves in and to ensure that they're getting out the vaccines swiftly to the populations that need it most without disenfranchising others.
1: Right. And that's why having a, you know, a robust, thoughtful national strategy um, would have been great. Um, And that strategy, of course, shouldn't be rigid. It would need to Um, be flexible enough to allow states to adapt. But, you know, people don't understand that we're not having one outbreak. We're having 50 different outbreaks across 50 different states. And the capabilities in the population of California and the state of New York are just completely different than the capabilities in the population of, say, Montana and Mississippi. And what's happening is the federal government and the current administration is kind of just treating all states as equal. And what we need to do is really be focusing on the states that are struggling at the moment to get essential workers and those at the most risk uh, vaccinated. Because just because some states are doing well and needs more vaccine, that's wonderful. Let's get them what they need. Um, but we also need to make sure we're not leaving some of the states behind that, frankly, either at their own fault or not, it really doesn't matter, weren't prepared. We need to make sure that we have a strategy that's not leaving those states and the people in them behind.
0: Well, it's funny that you say that because later today, the Biden administration is going to be unveiling their plan. And while there's a lot in it that I'm sure we don't, know about just yet. Um, And of course, we will be talking about this more on a future podcast. Um, What we do know is that this proposal is expected um, to be another big stimulus package similar to the one that was just passed uh, before the new year. Um, They anticipate it's going to cost about $1.3 trillion. It's going to continue to provide the states with additional resources for vaccine distribution and testing. And there's going to be a heavy focus on getting schools reopened. But it's also going to provide the, um, or hopefully they plan to provide the $2,000 stimulus checks that were such a, a sticking point with the previous stimulus package.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a couple of uh, very interesting weeks and months going into the the, uh, transition in the Biden administration. I mean, we're going to have uh, potential impeachment proceedings, uh, the approval of cabinet secretaries and, you know, something else the Biden administration probably isn't currently planning on, but will have to address early on are some of these recent regulatory changes happening at HHS.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's been really interesting to watch um, what's happening at the department recently, particularly in regards to FDA, um, who, um, you know, FDA has a lot of regulatory authority. And earlier this week, um, they were kind of blindsided by the department that issued um, some additional rules around drugs and medical devices that FDA has authority over, um, sort of reducing their ability to um, ensure their safety and efficacy before they hit the market. And then (laughs) later this week, uh, HHS uh, put out another um, regulatory change that would essentially strip the FDA of their oversight of genetically modified animals. Um, and this is really interesting, not only from a public health perspective, but also in terms of the precedent that it sets for future administrations. And we have to remember that this really didn't happen overnight. Um, you know, back in this the fall, back in September, HHS essentially said that all rulemaking power now rests in the secretary's hands, and that he or she is the one that has to sign up on those rules. And so that's how they've been able to peel back FDA's fees for over-the-counter products and strip it of its authority authority over lab-developed tests. Um, and to do this without, you know, the buy-in of the scientists um, and careers. Career public servants from FDA.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is setting a very dangerous precedent in my mind. The farther you take these uh, regulatory decisions away from the scientists and put them in the immediate office of the secretary, the more political these types of what I would call routine regulations become. And I don't think that was what most folks feel is the right thing to do. I mean, even former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb today or earlier this week tweeted, infringing on FDA's public health prerogatives in the closing days of the administration. The way they're pushing these unilateral actions will have long-term consequences at a time when FDA's stature is critical to seeing us through this crisis. I I couldn't agree more. With Dr. Gottlieb, I mean, what is happening right now? I think in the final hours of this administration is just crazy. I mean, what is going on with a week to go?
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. I I mean, I think that we've probably been in situations like this in the past where um, administrations are realizing that the clock is ticking and they're running out of time to get you know their priorities completed, but this is very interesting because you know i keep asking the question is this is this just like what happened when we were at the cdc throughout this response because you know i think we saw some of the political influences um impacting response activities but this goes beyond the response this is more overall um huge changes from a policy perspective that will have ramifications. And, you know, we haven't fully talked about on this podcast yet about all of the experiences that we had at CDC and 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 some of that will come out later on. Um, but it really is interesting to now see that um the politicization we saw during the response is extending, you know, well beyond that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is similar to some of the things that we saw at the the CDC. Um, you know, most of what the, I would say the political um, interference happening at the CDC was with guidance. I mean, unlike um, the FDA, I mean, the CDC is has very narrow and specific things that it is, um, that it regulates, frankly. And it's, it's things that are very specific, like, the importation of dogs and cats, Um, quarantine authority, cruise ships, things like that. On the other hand, the FDA is literally everything it puts out is in some form or not, I mean, a regulation. And so what is happening right now is while it's the same in, I guess, the theme of what we saw of um, politics getting involved with what was happening at the CDC, it, it actually is almost... Worse because I mean now we're getting out of just guidance documents, which is very horrible and bad that should never have been done, but now we're like politicizing regulations um, from the fDA
0: without the input and backing of science that actually supports those changes absolutely I mean I think that's really the 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 challenge that we have because I mean we were political appointees um. And there is a time and a place for policymaking to occur, but we that has to happen not at the expense of science and public health. So, you know, with only a week left, it'll be interesting to see how the Biden administration responds to these changes and if they, if they decide to follow this precedent that's set and retain this p- new power within the secretary's office moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And as we find out more on this topic, we'll certainly have a a future podcast. Um, But that's all the time that we have for today. As a reminder, you can now find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive comment. Um, As always, remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.